stand together for the reading of God's Word. You'll see there the title of the sermon is Jesus was seen by them during 40 days. And that's taken from Acts chapter 1 verse 3. But I'll read again from Luke 24 verses 33 through 53. And then also I will read from Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 9. And you'll begin to see the way Luke, the author of both of these books, has woven the end of Luke together with the beginning of Acts. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And now Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 9. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So in today's sermon, uh, first we'll look at Acts 
chapter 1, verse 3, and Luke's description of Christ's activity during these 40 days, which we'll see falls in two categories. And then we'll take a look at Luke 24, uh, verse 43, and also verse 44. And we'll see how verse 43 is the close of Luke's descriptions of the resurrection day events. And Luke uh, 24, verse 44 begins Luke's description of the final of the 40 days, the Ascension Day. And then from that, we'll say, okay, well, what happened in between? And then we'll actually go through the scriptures and look at the events of the 40 days, starting with Thomas, who came to believe on the second Christian Sabbath, leading up to likely the last event, which was Jesus appearing to his brother James, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And then along the way, some questions for application to us in our lives today. So, how did Luke describe Christ's activity during these 40 days? Acts chapter 1, verse 3 puts it this way. To whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there's two things that are emphasized by Luke here that Jesus did during these 40 days. Jesus presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. And secondly, he was speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So not only did he prove to them his complete, total, bodily, human resurrection, body and soul brought back to life, But then he also speaks to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, which we've already heard to some extent last week. Because remember last week, we looked at Jesus when he steps into their midst on Ascension Day. That was last week's sermon. Okay, so now we're kind of going back a little bit and saying, well, what happened between those two events, those two days? We're going to look at that in the scriptures. So Luke 24, verse 43 This likely ends Luke's description of Resurrection Day, which we can call Day 1 of 40. Resurrection Day can be Day 1 of 40. So the natural flow of Luke chapter 24, verses 33 to 43, which I read to you this morning already, shows us that Jesus appears to his disciples in the midst of them as they were discussing the Emmaus events and Christ's prior appearance to Peter. So, verse 43 ends that scene of Christ's appearance at the end of Resurrection Day. So we can call this day one of the 40 days of Acts 1, verse 3. Now, if we look at verse 44, we have to ask ourselves now, is this the same time frame as day one of the 40? Is this Resurrection Day still? Or is this later? And if you look at the remainder of the book of Luke, starting in verse 44, through to the end of the book, uh, verse 43, the natural flow shows the words of Christ in verse 44 through 49 closely connected with the ascension description of verses 50 to 53. And also, you'll see the similarity to what's clearly described on Ascension Day in Acts chapter 1. So this, I believe, corresponds to day 40. Uh, So what we looked at last week and what we studied last week was day 40 likely prior, right prior to Jesus taking them out to Bethany on the Mount of Olives for the ascension. And as we saw last week, the teaching there is very similar. And I'm not going to read uh, there on page three of your sermon notes. I'm not going to read to you again what I've already just read to you. 
But I do want to point out again the similarities between these two sections of what we studied last week and what is said in Acts chapter 1 regarding Ascension Day, the teaching that Jesus gives to them right before He walks with them out to Bethany on the Mount of Olives and ascends up to the Father. Similarities. Jesus tells them to tarry in Jerusalem. He tells them to wait for the promise of my Father. In in both texts, that phrase, the promise, is used to describe the Holy Spirit. He tells them that they are His witnesses. And that they are to take the gospel to the whole earth beginning at Jerusalem. In both texts, we see not only the gospel going to the whole earth, but the process, the geographic process is described there. And that they will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Now, each section also contains some unique items that are not in the other section. Uh, So what is likely going on here is that it was a a longer, more extended teaching. And if you take both of these together, you get a fuller picture of the entire teaching that took place on that day. So, what happens between the end of Luke's Resurrection Day account and the beginning of Luke's Ascension Day account? What happens between verse 43 and 44? What does the Bible tell us about this to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God? So as we go through these texts in Scripture, you're going to see how in general we're seeing him present infallible proofs and also he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. So first... Uh, The first thing that we see happening next after this first Christian Sabbath, after Resurrection Day, is the second Christian Sabbath, Thomas believes. This is given to us in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And if you look at the way uh, the Jewish people counted their days, this means it was the next Sabbath. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Again, the next Christian Sabbath. You know, that's what we're referring referring to. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look. Now listen closely to what Jesus says to Thomas. Because in a minute I'm going to read to you what Thomas says he's got to see and feel in order to believe. Okay? And so listen to what Jesus says to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, let's go back. Because seven days prior, by our reckoning, on the first Christian Sabbath, on Resurrection Day, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, Thomas wasn't present. We'll go back. Verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's almost as if Jesus knew that. Because did you hear what he said to Thomas when he shows up? So, what can we learn from Thomas? I think we can learn some things here. First of all, Thomas has enough belief to stick around with the disciples. 
He doesn't go back to whatever he was doing before. He's still there a week later. But he will not go on to full belief until he has been given infallible proofs of Christ's resurrection. That's the kind of guy Thomas was. Some of the other ones had believed. Thomas had not believed, and he had a pretty good reason. He could say, hey, I wasn't there. I'm not just going to believe your word. And he gives them two things that have to happen. He will not believe unless, one, he sees Christ's nail-scarred hands with his own eyes, just to see it with his own eyes. And, two, he has to touch Christ's nail scars with his own finger and put his own hand in Christ's fear-scarred side. This is a man demanding all kinds of evidence. Not just seeing it, but he has to feel it as well. And you recall when we looked at the text before about Christ's resurrection, they thought he was a spirit. Right? They thought he was a ghost. And so Thomas has still got this in his mind. He's willing to believe, but he's looking for some very serious evidence. So what happens? Well, we've read, Jesus stood in their midst, right there before Thomas's eyes. Jesus spoke audible words to them, peace to you, the same words that he said to them on the first Christian Sabbath, and the same words that he says to you and me today on whatever Christian Sabbath this is, if we can count back. <laughs> but this has got a finite number, this Sabbath, Christian Sabbath day here today, and Jesus is dwelling with us by faith, speaking his peace to us again today. So what happened? Jesus spoke audible words directly to Thomas, inviting Thomas to look at his hands, which is proof number one that he needed, and to touch his hands with his finger, part of proof number two, and to put his hands into Jesus' spear-scarred side, part of proof number two. That's exactly what he offered to Thomas. Now, while not directly reported to us, the strong inference is that Thomas saw Christ's cross scars with his own eyes and touched his cross scars with his own fingers and the spear scars with his own hand. That's what is strongly inferred. Maybe not, though. Maybe he just saw, and that was all he needed. But the text doesn't tell us that he actually touched him, best I can make out. But he probably did. And as this is happening, Jesus tells him not to be unbelieving, but rather to believe. So Jesus is proving himself to Thomas and commanding him, don't be an unbeliever. Believe. And Thomas believes. So he wasn't one of those guys who was just looking for any excuse not to believe, and then you give him the proof and he still doesn't believe, someone who's really not ever going to believe. That wasn't Thomas. He had real faith that was in place at that time. He was in the process of coming to full faith because he says, my Lord and my God. A confession of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right there before him as resurrected from the dead as God and man my Lord, and my God. Jesus then goes on to define two types of believers. Those that are like Thomas, believing because they have seen the resurrected Christ with their own eyes. They've been given personal, infallible proofs, and that's what's necessary for this kind of believer. And God, in his mercy, condescends to provide those infallible proofs for these honest seekers. He's got enough proof, he's got enough faith to be where he is looking for Jesus, but not enough faith to believe yet until more proof is provided. Now, in one sense, this applies only to first century believers because they could actually see Christ's resurrected body there standing before them. They could see his body, they could touch the nail scars, they could put their hand in his side. But, on the other hand, there are still those today who need more proof from God than others. 
some uh, are given a greater measure of faith than others. But God blesses us as we come to him with the faith that we have. And when we're lacking faith, what do we say? Like the disciples, we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And we always need more faith. And we always have to bear with one another because some of us have more faith than others. But, note, faith always comes first before we can believe any proofs that God condescends to give to us. Thomas ultimately did not believe because of the proofs. Thomas believed because God gave him faith. And even the faith that he had in the resurrected Christ there before him was a gift from God. Very important for us to understand that. We can get down a lot of confusing and difficult paths in evangelism and apologetics if we forget that reality. There's another kind of individual presented here by Jesus, and it's those who have not seen Christ's resurrected body, and yet they still believe, relying upon the truth of the gospel message, believing the messenger who believes brings them the gospel. Now, have you ever seen Christ's resurrected body and heard his voice and put your hand into his nail scars, your finger into his nail scars, and your hand into his side? You haven't done that. Right now, of course, many of you, maybe the mystery of the Lord's Supper is coming to mind. And when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. But setting, setting that aside, none of us have seen Christ's body and touched his body. So we're in the second category. We believe without having seen him. All Christians who have never seen or touched Christ's resurrected body and who believe in him in this category. And <clears throat> resurrection is a fanciful idea. <laughs> and if you believe it, praise be to God. Because it's, it's really more like a fantasy novel than, than anything we would expect to read in a history book. And yet you believe it as not only true, but as the defining reality of history. Right? And that's a gift from God that he has given to us. So I rejoice to be in this second category. Jesus says we're blessed. Isn't that good news? We're blessed that we believe this without having to have that much proof like Thomas did. Well, next, what happens after this? Well, in Matthew 28, 16, we're told the next thing that happens. They go to Galilee as commanded. Okay, so the strong suggestion is with the second Christian Sabbath, they're still there in Jerusalem. They haven't left yet. Even though, as we'll see, they were told to go to Galilee on Resurrection Day, on day one of the 40. It appears they didn't leave at that time. It appears they were still in Jerusalem at that time. And again, you go back to um, verse 26 in John chapter 20. It says, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside. So it gives you a reference back to what had happened in the first Christian Sabbath day. But now they're going from Jerusalem, they're heading north to Galilee. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. That's Matthew 28, 16. So they knew where they were going. Now the Bible doesn't tell us which mountain it was. Okay, we just are told that he told them. So we have to wonder. Now this had been predicted at the Last Supper. Matthew 26 puts it this way. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's bad news. Here's the good news. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So they knew that Jesus would be there waiting for him. Mark 14 says it very similarly. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So the bringing back together of all of the disciples would reach its culmination in Galilee. Now, if we go to resurrection morning, day one of the 40 in Matthew chapter 28, we can see verse 7, the angel speaking, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And then Jesus says later, repeating what the angel had said in verse 10, there from Matthew 28, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So this is from Resurrection Day. Mark uh, chapter 16, similarly in verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So Jesus has appointed a place, a mountain in Galilee for them. Not only did he tell them that he would be raised up, but he had a plan for meeting them there and had already told them where to meet. Sometime after that second Christian Sabbath meeting with Christ, when Thomas believed, the disciples decide together to travel to Galilee. Off they go. They have been told they will see him there. They've been commanded, and so they go. They're going to see him, and they will be instructed by him of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There will be more infallible proofs given to them, and there will be more instruction given to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, what happens next? Well, most likely, the next event John gives to us in chapter 21. Now, we can't be dogmatic about the order of these things. The scriptures don't explicitly tell us for sure. But it makes sense that this is the next event. Where is it? Well, this is in Galilee. This is by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Lake of Gennesaret in the Bible. It's got a number of different names. And so here they are. The disciples have made their way to Galilee. And some of them decide to go fishing in the Sea of Galilee, which, as I've said, you know, is the same thing as the Sea of Tiberias. Now, verse 1 says, after these things. Now, that's referencing their prior meeting on the second Christian Sabbath when Thomas believed. So this is in John, back to the Gospel of John. Chapter 20 has come to a close. And now, after that event with Thomas took place, this is the next thing that John relates to us. If the way the sea is named in the text can be a clue, and it makes sense that it can be, then perhaps the disciples are near Tiberias, the city of Galilee on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, founded by Herod Antipas in AD 18 and named after the emperor. So that's a guess as to what part of the lake that they were, or the sea that they were at at that point. But we don't know for sure. But they're in Galilee. We know that because the Sea of Galilee is in Galilee. Okay? What happens next? Well, first, in verses 1 through 8, we see Jesus calling to his disciples from the shore. There's a great catch of fish. Peter 
Instead of staying in the boat like he did in Luke chapter 5, he swims. So let's, let's listen to this great day, this great, wonderful event by the sea. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. So you can see there's seven of them. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter had heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So 200 cubits, that's uh, 200 times one and a half, that's like 300 feet, It's about 100 yards, about the length of a football field, right? Did I just get that math right? So that's why, you know, he's kind of having to shout out across the water. So I'm going to go back to Luke 5 because, you know, Peter, James, and John, they had been through this before on the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of their relationship with Christ. Back in Luke chapter 5. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. That was the first time. They'd been through this before. Now this time, instead of staying in the boat and tending to the huge catch of fish, Peter jumps in and swims to his Lord. Now, you know, there's a lot more riding on this probably for Peter than some of the others in terms of what, you know, he had been through. He didn't ever, ever not want to be right there at Christ's side for one moment. Forget about the fish. He'll give us more. I think that was probably what was going on with Peter. Not only does Jesus show himself to them, but he performs this mighty wonder with the fish. So it's kind of a double proof. Not just that he's alive as a man, but hey, guess what? He's still God. And Thomas had said that, my Lord and my God. So what happens next in John chapter 21? Well, they have breakfast together with Jesus. Now, listen to the text. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught, which you have just caught. (laughs) 
He gave, he gave them credit. They did catch the fish, right? <laughs> Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. So their, their anticipation, their expectation had been fulfilled. I'll meet you in Galilee. I'll go before you. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so this is where we have a little bit more confidence about the order that things are happening in because of that last phrase. The first time being the first Christian Sabbath, the second time being the second Christian Sabbath with Thomas, and then this being the third time. And we might want to guess that it was also on a Christian Sabbath, maybe. Because, um, of course, they probably didn't understand the transfer of the Sabbath yet. So let's go fishing, right? And if they needed to eat, it was the necessary work anyways. So Jesus cooks breakfast for these tired and hungry fishermen. Been up all night, hadn't caught a thing. Fish and bread cooked over a fire of coals. Can you smell it? Can you imagine being there? next to the sea on that morning, that spring morning. They arrive to the shore. They're too amazed to even speak up. And they bring some of the fish to Jesus, 153 large fish, but not all of them. They just brought some of them to Jesus. The net is still intact. Remember, it was broken in Luke 5. This time it's not broken. Breakfast with Jesus by the sea that he cooked for them. Oh, Jesus is we're eating together with our Lord. You see, he's giving them strong encouragement for the battle ahead. Strong encouragement for the battle ahead. Imagine the power of this memory for these men who went on to suffer so deeply and face so many forms of cruelty at the hands of evil men as they were taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They will catch men, and the Holy Spirit's nets never break. They were encouraged by Jesus when he came to them. Infallible proofs that pierce the reason and penetrate the heart. Teaching them of the things pertaining to Christ's glorious kingdom. His kingdom of grace, mercy. Peace and joy for all who will repent and believe the gospel. They want to invite everyone into the peace by the sea that Jesus gave to them that day. Well, there's more. Because something happens after breakfast as well. More teaching about the kingdom. There's three questions that Peter gets from Jesus. And then Peter's death is described. So the, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So, yeah, okay, you jumped out of the boat and swam to me, but let me talk to you now about how you show me your, your love for me. Feed my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Does Peter go on to do that? He does, doesn't he? Going on with verse 18, what's, what's going to happen? Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen through this life of faithfulness. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus tells Peter he's going to die in his service. He's going to die following him. Last time Jesus told Peter something about what was going to happen, he didn't believe him. It appears as though this time he did believe him and he obeyed him anyways. I mean, what if someone told you, you're going to be a minister in this regard, and through your faithfulness, you're going to be put to death. You're going to be persecuted and put to death. Would you do it? So after the joyful meal by the sea, Jesus addresses Peter directly. Many have talked about how this is Peter's restoration. This is given to us in Scripture to show how Christ restored Peter from his bitter weeping after his denial. And we know he had already appeared to Peter. We don't know what was said at that first appearance on the resurrection day, the first day of the 40. After this joyful meal by the sea, drenched with the waters of the sea, certainly he was still wet. Think they brought a bunch of towels and a change of clothes? I don't think so. Maybe they did. But in either case, Peter will now be showered, drenched, if you will, with God's grace pressing him to a life of happy non-denial. Peter's not going to walk in a life of denial anymore. To a life of following Christ's footsteps. A life of love and service to Christ and to Christ's sheep. Demonstrated to us, as we will see in the book of Acts, as we particularly see in First and Second Peter, and in other places where Peter is mentioned in the New Testament, we'll learn about his faithfulness. And it is a life that will lead to his execution at the hands of unbelievers. Church history holding out the tradition that he was crucified upside down. So note here, please, brothers and sisters, and um, all my uh, little ones who are my brothers and sisters, children and adults alike. What is the kingdom of God? How, what is, how does this pertain to the kingdom of God? Well, it tells us about living in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is filled up with those who follow Christ, loving His church, no matter what the consequences are. We're not shaped by the pressures around us. We are driven by the pressure of Christ within us. By his word 
guiding us in the lives that we live. That's what it looks like to walk in the kingdom of God. As we pray at the beginning of the sermons, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We all need this, don't we? To learn how to walk in the kingdom like this. Well, then the text goes on, and we get a little bit about John. Verse 20 to 23. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one... Oh, leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? So Peter's asking Jesus about John. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now, think about it. Peter and John, we look back to Luke 5, right? Peter and John have been close friends and business partners for years. So it's only natural that Peter would ask about John. Maybe he's imagining some sort of mutual ministry that they would go off and do together. Yet Jesus redirects Peter's focus. Peter and John would not stay together during their earthly ministry of the gospel. Peter needs to focus on following where Jesus leads him, not on where John might lead him. Jesus has his plan for each of these men. And they need each of them to focus on Christ and not on one another. And so the implication from Christ's words to Peter is that, yeah, you're going to die before I return. And John is going to still be here when I return. What is this visitation? What is this that Jesus is talking about? Well, church tradition holds that John died around 100 A.D. So it appears that he did live until after Christ visited his judgment on Israel. So this is a lot of... uh, This text leads some to postulate that perhaps John the Apostle is still alive on the earth today. Yeah. Awaiting Christ's final return. Incognito somewhere. Well, if you don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, remain till I come... If you don't realize that Jesus is talking about A.D. 70 and why he would even bring that up, I mean, nobody is going to remain alive on the earth until Jesus comes back thousands of years later. So he's clearly referencing that time frame, that generation, that some would still be on the earth. So, So what do we see here? Jesus is teaching us and them by example Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be sought first. Following Christ first. That is is true for them and it is true for you and for me. Following Christ first. Not one another. We help one another follow Christ. That's what we do. Paul says, "Imitate, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are on a journey together following Christ together. That is what we do. And our paths intersect. And he has us together right now. Foothills Christian Assembly. 
worshiping Him day after day, Lord's day after Lord's day, together seeking to learn to follow Him better. And we're helping each other do that. We do not follow, follow one another. We follow Christ ultimately. What happens next? Well, the next thing that we see that likely occurs is the Great Commission. The 11 on the unnamed mountain in Galilee from Matthew 28. Starting at verse 17 to, and then to, through to verse 20. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They're still doubting. Think about that. They're still doubting. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, now this is clearly speaking to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is, that, <laughs> that's very obvious what's happening here. What do we learn about the kingdom of God? Here's what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So sometime around their breakfast by the sea with Jesus, likely after that breakfast by the sea, the disciples make their way to this unnamed mountain in Galilee. Now we've already guessed that they were at Tiberias, right? Let, we can only speculate about the mountain in Galilee, but it's, it's virtually impossible not to speculate. If the disciples' seaside breakfast meeting with Jesus occurred near Tiberias, we may, may, we may ask ourselves what mountains are nearby. Mount Tabor is about 18 miles southwest of Tiberias. That's not very far. And one stream of church history points to Mount Tabor as the meeting location. Now, you may recall, when we did, when we just, some, some of you may have already been thinking, maybe it was the same mountain as the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe he took them there again. Well, when we went through the section teaching on Mount, uh, uh, the Transfiguration Mountain, um, we, I, I taught, and I still believe that it's far more likely that that took place up at Mount Hermon, because that's where they were during that time, uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is not in Galilee. Okay? And there are some traditions in the, in the church, and actually the, the, the largest, most prevalent uh, church history stream regarding the transfiguration is Mount Tabor. Okay? So maybe they got them confused. Who knows? <laughs> we don't know where this happened. It happened in a mountain, on a mountain in Galilee. That's what we can say for sure. It'll be one of those fun things when we get to heaven uh, for the Lord to... Lord, where did y'all meet <laughs> in Galilee? Where was the transfiguration? Um, what are the infallible proofs? Well, again, Jesus shows himself to them. He speaks to them. And he's again showing them that he has been resurrected as a man, as we've discussed before, in body and soul, as a man resurrected. Now, he teaches them a lot of things pertaining to the kingdom of God here in the Great Commission. First of all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has asked the Father and the Father has given to him all the lands of the earth and all the rulers of the earth. And this is correcting their understanding of the kingdom, which, as we've said before, was provincial, it was regional, limited to Israel. Even the question they asked there in Acts 1, which we'll look at more in the future, shows that they were still thinking provincially in spite of this teaching. Next, all nations are to submit to Christ's authority. So not only has all authority been given to Jesus Christ over the entire earth, but they are to go and tell all the nations, and that's later part, but this point here is that all the nations are to submit to Christ's authority. 
It's not just individual submission. All the nations are submit to submit to Christ's authority. Next, the disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. The process by which Jesus Christ intends for the kingdom of grace to be extended through the earth is through the process of his people going and making disciples to the ends of the earth. Next, the church is to baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and water baptism is in view here. This is the gradual flood of water baptism over the entire earth that we're called to. Because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on the entire earth. And because all nations are His, every one of them is to be baptized in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, marking out His divine, sovereign rule over them and His gracious care of them. Next, the church is to teach all nations to observe all of Christ's commandments. It's not just a water baptism. It is also a preaching of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation that the church is called to take to the entire ends of the earth. This is not in any way meant to say that we're only to teach the commands that we hear Christ speak in the New Testament. Because in Matthew 5, remember, not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all things are fulfilled. And finally... Always with us, everywhere we go. Again, this is a task, like what we saw when we looked last week at Luke 24 when Jesus said similar words to the disciples. What? No way. They're going to kill us. We're going to tell them that you're the king? Well, where are you? They're not going to believe us. But he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus Christ is with us this morning. He dwells in us by faith through the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And we continue, as we read this morning at the beginning of the service, the last verse in Psalm 85, we continue to walk in His footsteps. He is the one who is here with us to the end of the age. As we go forth to do His will, He's with us. That's an important kingdom of God point. We don't do this in our own power, in our own strength, in our own wisdom. It's not the mighty who inherit the earth. It's the meek. So how did they respond to this? Well, most of them worshipped him. Okay, most of them worshipped him, believed him, and worshipped him. But even still, some of them are still doubting. Think of all, uh, everything we've talked about so far has occurred. This, these post-resurrection things that these men have seen, and some of them are still doubting. Even after all those inv- infallible proofs. I mean, there's some, maybe some of the men who were there at Tiberias with him on the sea for that breakfast were doubting. We don't know who the doubters were. And perhaps this is why Mark reports Jesus later rebuking the disciples for their hardness of heart on Ascension Day. And we'll look at that later when we get to Ascension Day, which will be next week. We'll look at that. In Mark 16, Jesus is pretty direct with them about their hardness of heart, and they're still not believing. This is Ascension Day. 
They've seen all this. Well, I don't know about you, but that is very encouraging to me. Do you doubt God? Do you doubt? I think you do. I know I do. And do you know that you can go to him and you can say, Lord, look at these disciples that you called and look at what they, they saw and they were still doubting. Lord, I, and you helped them. And, and you know what that means? We know that God will listen to us in tenderness when we cry out to him and say, Lord, I doubt. I doubt these kingdom truths that I've just read. I doubt that you're really with me when I speak the gospel of the kingdom of God outside the walls of this church, outside the walls of my home. I don't really think you're going to be there, Lord. I don't really think that you're going to accomplish this great commission in my life through me. Maybe others. Maybe others who are, who are more righteous and who have more faith. Maybe others, not, not through me. Or, or maybe only after I, I straighten up a little bit. So just see the patience of Christ, brothers and sisters, to deal with each one of his disciples according to their need. He's so patient with all of us, his beloved children. And you know, let's remember this as parents, because how often do we say to our children, how many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> well, aren't you glad that that's really not how God speaks to us? And that's not really God's heart towards us. That he keeps telling us, over and over and over again, the spots where we doubt, he keeps speaking to us. Just keep going back to him. Keep going back to him for more faith. So what happens next? Well, suddenly, we go to 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul has got some extra information for us. Paul knows about this. It's not mentioned in the Gospels. Over 500 brethren at once. The mystery conference. What in the world happened at this conference? Wouldn't you love to know? That's another question for heaven. <laughs> this is 1 Corinthians 15, 6. I'll read verses 3 through 7. So this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth in the mid-50s, probably. And he's saying, look, here's the gospel. Because I delivered to you what I received at first. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now this is part of the gospel going on. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, and that was probably resurrection day, number one. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And the then by all the apostles is probably ascension day. So probably Paul's walking from Resurrection Day to Ascension Day like Luke does in Acts chapter 1. So Jesus gives infallible proof of his resurrection to this meeting of the assembled group of over 500 who were together all at once. Ever been to a conference that had about 500 people? You can think back to what that was like to be there. 500 people there. Most of these witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 25 years later, if my math is right, because 1 Corinthians was written in the mid-50s uh, to the church at Corinth. and Jesus was resurrected, ascended, crucified, resurrected, ascended, A.D. 30, most likely. This is about 25 years later, Paul is writing this. And most of these people are still alive. Where did they meet? We don't know for sure. 
But it seems likely Jesus also taught them of the things concerning the kingdom of God at that meeting. They probably didn't just have a dance. <laughs> they, they probably, I don't know, I would guess they had some fish and some bread maybe. It seems like fish was always a part of what they did together. And he probably taught them. Because, I mean, what did he do during the 40 days? Jesus said he gave infallible proofs and he taught, spoke to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So we can say with a high level of confidence, that's what happened when he was with these 500. Were they still in Galilee or had they returned to Jerusalem already? Commentaries vary. We don't really know uh, where this 500, this meeting of the 500 took place. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to tell us that he was seen by James. After he was seen by the 500, he was seen by James. Who is this James? It's probably his brother. Sometime after he showed himself to the 500, he shows himself to his brother James. John Chrysostom in the 4th century wrote, After that he was seen of James. I suppose his brother, for the Lord is said to have himself ordained him and made him bishop in Jerusalem first. So we know that his brother did not believe at some point, and then he did believe. And it appears as though Christ appearing to his own brother that he grew up with, James, is a part of that conversion process for James. And as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, he was the first among equals there in Jerusalem. Next week we'll look at the Ascension Day, and we'll look at those three scriptures that I have listed there for you. And... um, Rejoice in Christ's ascension. So Jesus, our crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Lord, spent time with his disciples and a lot of other people during those 40 days, giving infallible proofs of his resurrection and teaching them concerning the things that pertain to the kingdom of God. That's what he did. And as we will go forward through the book of Acts, we will see that after his ascension and their waiting for 10 days and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that they did indeed go forth and tell the world this gospel message. And now you, me, all Christians in the world, we are recipients of this stream of grace that God has brought into the earth. And we can continue that same gospel deluge of the earth through our lives of faithfulness to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are weaker in faith than these disciples. And we thank You, Lord God, for Your patience with us. Lord, we need You to work in us. And we thank You, Father, that you increase our awareness of our weakness and our need before you of the depths of our doubts and how we have much less faith than we think we do. Oh, help us, Father. Grant to us more faith in Christ, our crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Lord. Give us more faith in the gospel of the kingdom of God Grant to us faithfulness to you, Lord, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have called us with all gentleness and lowliness, meekness and bearing with one another, Lord, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace 
Bless us, we pray, O God, to this end for your glory. In Jesus' name.